0: No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible.
1: Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, Jeremy sits down with physician Peter Atiyah for a wide-ranging conversation about how modern athletes are defying the odds on the longevity of their careers.
0: The Federer's of the world are able to do something that I will spend the rest of my life trying to do and trying to teach. They remain completely connected. Every inch of their body is connected at all times, and force is always transmitted in a perfect manner through the muscles and not to join
1: this is the sporting life on ESPN radio and the ESPN app here's Jeremy Schap welcome to another edition of the sporting life this week we have the privilege of being joined by Peter Atia he is a physician. He is an expert on longevity. He's an expert on pretty much everything. His podcast, The Drive, is one of the most popular podcasts out there, and I have known him for about a year now, and I have to say I am constantly surprised at the breadth, but more importantly, the depth of his knowledge, not only about Sports, not only about medicine, uh, about uh, so many different things, and we thought we would do a special show with Peter Atia this week. Peter, thank you so much for joining us here on the Sporting Life.
0: Thanks, Jeremy, and I—I'll take a little issue with what you've said. I think you've just been lucky, and that everything you've asked me about, I happen to know
1: about. So I'm worried you're going to now <laughs> expose me as a total fraud. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, In fact, we had a a screening a few months ago of 42 to 1, the 30 for 30 that I that I co-directed and you happen to be in the audience that night. And my co-director, Ben Hauser, uh, afterwards we were talking, he's like, who is the guy who was asking all those questions and who knew all the answers to all those things about boxing? It's like, by the way, everything he said was absolutely right. I mean, in those situations, you often run into people who, who like to talk, but don't know what they're talking about. And you actually know the history of boxing. Uh, you certainly know formula one, you know, endurance sports as well. When people ask you what you do, Peter, how do you describe yourself?
0: Uh, it depends. If I'm trying to get out of it, which is most of the time, I say I'm a race car driver or a shepherd. Those would be my two (laughs) go-to career paths. Um, and race car driver meaning not like Formula One, but some like, you know, race car series nobody's ever heard of, you know, Formula Ford maybe where I can BS my way through it and they don't know what I'm talking about. If push comes to shove and I'm absolutely forced to talk about what I do, Um, I usually say that I'm just, you know, really interested and obsessed in understanding the science of longevity, which means how to live longer, but of equal importance, how to live better.
1: Well, of course, you know, um, this might sound trite, but when you talk about someone who's interested in the science of longevity at the same time, uh, is a passionate fan of Formula One, who in fact is named his son Ayrton after his favorite, driver uh, of all time, there seems to be something in conflict there when you talk about people who have an entire disregard, not entire disregard, that's unfair, but who do something that risks their life every day with someone who studies what it takes to bring us to the brinks of as long as we can live. Well, you know, Formula
0: One is an interesting sport, uh, as you, you obviously alluded to the fact that I, I love it. And, and yes, I, my youngest son is named Dayartan after the the, uh, the late, great uh, Senna, who I will still to this day and probably forever maintain as the greatest Formula One driver. Um I think the sport today is very different than the sport that Senna uh, was a part of in the the era that Senna represented, which was really the, you know, Senna's death marked the biggest transition in the sport. The, sp- the sport has had many transitions in terms of, uh, you know, defined by the, the drivers and the technology of the era and things like that. Um, but Senna's death absolutely changed everything. I had the privilege of going back to Imola, to the place where he died uh, last month. This was actually a surprise my wife arranged. So we, we had, we took our first vacation ever since our honeymoon together and it was to Italy and she, uh, figured out that we would sneak in a day and go to Imola, which is uh, again a, a, a small track, um, outside of, um, Bologna where, where Senna died on May 1st of 94. And to have watched this on video so many times, I feel like I know every inch of that circuit, but then to stand on it for the first time, um, and we were very lucky to be there on a day that was not only beautiful, but completely empty. So it was about a month after the 25th anniversary of his death, which obviously attracted people from around the world. And then to be there after all of that had gone away, and it was just us to be there alone with the monuments. Um, was incredibly powerful um, and yes I was really reminded of how dangerous the sport was in that era um, many of the drivers today will you know when you hear them in interviews they'll talk about how how grateful they are for those drivers that risk their lives um, for example there's a, a you probably know who Mark Weber is you may remember Mark drove for Red Bull a few years ago you know Mark Weber was involved in a very famous crash that, if, if you watch the crash, you just think like, how is anybody getting out of that car? And not only does he get out of the car, he doesn't have a scratch on him. <clears throat> what a lot of people don't realize when you see that crash is the wheels came flying off his car, but they didn't actually come near the cockpit. They had a tether on them that tethered them to the actual chassis, like within the axle. Um, that technology is entirely brought about by Senna's death. Senna died because the wheel flew off, hit him in the head of the cockpit. So you had a million reasons why... You know Senate crashed, and we could debate that forever that that 's not entirely clear to this day, but what's, what is clear is that the proximate cause of death was w- death was blunt head trauma about, brought about by the wheel, the front wheel coming off and going directly into his head. If that had not happened, it would have been a trivial accident by the way. He would have not had a scratch on his body, he would have probably finished the race. And so that's one of dozens of safety changes that came about in Formula One as a result of that. And, and, and that, you know, that, so many changes came about because of that. And Weber, on the anniversary of Senna's death, actually paid tribute to that and said, look, I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Senna and his death because that changed, directly changed the sport and the technology such that here I am today. So.
1: We're speaking with Dr. Peter Atia. He is the host of The Drive. Podcast uh, that so many people have been talking about. He's an expert on the applied science of longevity, the extension of human life and well-being. He's also, as you've been hearing, an expert as well on Formula One, combat sports, uh, endurance sports, and so many other things. You know, you mentioned uh, Senna's death, May first, nineteen ninety-four. I happen to be. I was in Monte Carlo a few weeks after that, <clears throat> and you would remember the details. I don't really, but I remember there was. I was there in June of 94, uh, doing a story about, of all things, the Saudi Arabian World Cup soccer team that was coming to the United States to play in the World Cup that summer. And um, Senna had just died. and Someone else had just died in Formula One, I think.
0: Roland Ratzenberger died the day before Senna. And so you had not had a death in Formula One since 1982 when Jill Villeneuve was killed. And then you fast forward 12 years. It's still a very dangerous sport. There are devastating injuries and lots of things that approximate death. But it was not until that weekend of death at Imola when you have a devastating accident on a Friday, another one on Saturday that results in Ratzenberger's death, and then, of course, Senna's death on the, on the Sunday
1: your story uh your personal story um, how you grew up what interested you how you uh um, how you went into medicine uh can you tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like
0: well, I grew up in Toronto, and uh, like all kids growing up in in Canada, of course, hockey was my 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 love. I grew up during an era when the Toronto Maple Leafs couldn't have sucked any harder. So that really, even though you went to Maple Leaf Gardens to see the Leafs play, you were only going to watch your favorite teams play, which were for me, for me was the Edmonton Oilers at the time, just an unbelievable dynasty. And this would be a fun discussion. Maybe for dinner tonight, we can talk about Patriots versus Bulls versus Oilers. Versus Yankees in the United States, it's easy to overlook uh, a sort of a hockey team from a part of Canada most people couldn't put on a map from the '80s. You know, but if you really start to think about it, like Gretzky, Messier, Curry, Anderson, Lowe, Fuhr could all be on the ice at the same time. Let's just reflect on that for a moment, right? Like there aren't NHL All-Star teams that can approximate that kind of talent when they get to pull from the entire league, and that was one team. So anyway. Um, loved hockey growing up. But by about the age of 12 or 13, my interest really shifted to boxing. And it almost happened overnight. I mean, I was captivated in an instant by a fight that I, we must have discussed. Did we, did we discuss Hagler Hearns when I interviewed you?
1: I don't remember. I don't remember if Man. we did. But, I mean, it was a captivating fight. There's, There's little doubt about that.
0: Yeah, so – so the, the, the April 1985 Hegler-Hearns fight, which, well, I guess I would have been 12, um was a moment that made me realize there could be an interesting arbitrage in my ability. Cause I think when you're young, you're insecure. At least I was. I mean, just incredibly insecure. Not me. No. <laughs> so, so you're, you're sort of, you're, we look to sports as a way to validate our identity in some way. And, of course you want to be good at something. And you know, I was an okay goalie. I was a goalie in hockey and and I was okay, but I think by 13 I knew I wasn't going to make it to the NHL. I think that was that was clear, right? And and again, I had the luxury of growing up in a city that produced probably more people in the NHL than any other part of the world. So at least I got to see what the best looked like. Um
1: you had yeah. measuring sticks in Toronto at a very young age. You could tell Hey, that guy, you know, you could tell, those kids were spotted at 12 or 13. You knew the kids were going to end up at the very top.
0: That's right. Yeah. There's a funneling system in Canada where basically by the time you're 13 or 14, if you're not on a path to play in junior A, um, by the time you're 16 or 17, it was still very unusual that you would get a scholarship to a U.S. school. That was not the path well taken. It was the, the junior A, A to junior A to NHL. Anyway. Um, what I saw in that fight, perversely, was an opportunity that I saw in myself, which is I can do something that I'm seeing this guy Marvin Hagler do on TV today. As I got, especially as I got to know more about Hagler, and he became sort of my favorite fighter of that whole era, which is one. As I would go on to learn, he could train harder than anybody else. You know, a lot of fighters show up to camp and they train for six weeks and then they fight and then they kind of get out of shape. That was never Hagler. I mean, Hagler was in shape. 365 days a year and camp was just to sharpen the iron and i realized well i can do that Two, he could take punishment in staggering quantities i think thomas hearns would have taken the head off any other fighter on on that day um, and i was like i think i can do that now, i didn't know that at the time but I, my, my hypothesis was i bet i could get beat up harder than anybody else <laughs> um, And so basically I just decided like this is what I'm going to devote my life to is is trying to become the best one of these things, the best middleweight version of this. And so that was that was probably the first time in my life I really experienced a true obsession.
1: We're speaking with Dr. Peter Atia, host of The Drive podcast, longevity expert. We were talking about growing up in Toronto as a hockey fan, a fan of the Edmonton Oilers who had the great dynasty that won uh, all those Stanley Cups in the 1980s, with and without Wayne Gretzky, we should point out. I was at... Um, The clincher when they won the 84 Stanley Cup finals on on Long Island, when they ended the Islanders dynasty after four straight Stanley Cups for the Islanders from 83-83, I was at, was it a game seven at the Nassau Coliseum that they won?
0: Would have been a game five if my memory serves me correctly. I think that uh, the Islanders only won one game in that series after sweeping the Oilers in four straight the previous season to win their fourth consecutive cup.
1: And then, then you become, uh, interested, and you don't just become interested in things, you become obsessed with things, if that's a fair way of putting it, but deeply, uh, deeply interested in, in boxing after the spectacular Hagler-Hearns fight in, in 1985, spring of 1985, one of the most epic rounds in the history of, of boxing. And it was a great year, of course, for, uh, the division as well with, with Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran, um, but Hagler, two years later, he fights Ray Leonard. Controversial fight still, April 1987, two years later. And uh, although many people still think that he won the fight, he lost the fight to Ray Leonard, at least officially. And he never fought again. Um, what was the lesson, what was it like for you as a kid to see your boxing hero walk away at that stage?
0: God, you know, that, that, it's funny to think that, again, in, I'm 14 years old at that time. I'm in eighth grade. I remember that fight meant so much to me. So first of all, for, for reasons I still haven't fully digested, I just hated Leonard as a kid growing up. You know, once I got into boxing, I think you either fell into one camp or another.
1: Well, he's the antithesis of Hagler. He, he's glitzy and he's show offy and great fighter. You can't take anything away from Ray Leonard, but it's the opposite of the lunch pail.
0: Approach. That's 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 right. Now, look, today, if I could meet Sugar Ray Leonard, it would be I would it would be the greatest honor of my life, and I could sit down and I would love to wax philosophically. But at the time, I think you're correct. I think your identity is wrapped up in your idols on some level, and I viewed myself as a guy that had no natural talent. I was never going to get anything that was going to you know anything anything I was going to accomplish in the ring was going to have to be done through pure grit. And I saw in that Duran, I saw in that. Hagler, uh, and I didn't see in that Leonard. So, as, as you point out, I mean, it's an amazing story to think that Leonard even contemplated a comeback. What most people I think have forgotten was he had been floored by Kevin McBride. What was his name? Uh, uh,
1: Donnie Lalonde? Donnie. No, no, no. That was oh, after. That was after. I was after.
0: Uh, what was the name of the guy he fought in 80s? He briefly came out of retirement right. in 85 or 86. Wins the fight, but in a very uninspiring manner. And it, it, well, I, anyway.
1: detached retina, right? That's right, um, yeah. I don't
0: remember. Anyway, I can't believe I forget, up. yeah. So anyway, when when the decision, which I still remember the decision score. So it was a, it was a split decision. You had 115-113 Hagler, 115-113 Leonard, 118-110 Leonard by one Joe Joe Gara the judge. Kevin Howard. Kevin Howard. yes. Yeah, sorry. How can
1: I say Kevin, Kevin
0: McBride yeah, was yeah. Tyson. Yes, last yes, year. yeah. So, um, the next day I come to school and all the girls in my eighth grade class have pitched in to buy a pound of sugar and it is sitting on my desk. I mean, the trash talking starts young. Um, I obviously don't think Hagler lost the fight. I, I believe Hagler did win the fight. Uh, I, I, I score that fight 115-113 for Hagler. But at the same time, Hegler did not fight a great fight. Uh, furthermore, Hegler sold the fight. Right? There are three things that got negotiated in that contract that the – the Leonard camp wanted and basically bought. So in exchange for Hegler getting the dominant part of the purse, which was really what he wanted the most, this, I believe, was Hagler's critical mistake. This is where he let his ego get in the way of his legacy. I'm answering your question in the most roundabout way. He was – Hegler was forever pissed off at how easy Leonard had it. Leonard's first purse was probably half a million dollars because he's an Olympic gold medalist, right? Hagler's first purse is probably $250. So Hagler always had this chip on his shoulder that Leonard was this guy who had it all great. And in this fight, it was going to be different. And Hagler was going to get paid the most. And in exchange for that, Leonard basically got three concessions. The first was a smaller ring. The second was larger gloves. And the third, and I believe most important, was 12 rounds versus 15, because this was on the cusp of when an IBF-sanctioned fight could be 15 rounds. Now, it would be within three months later, you would see the last of the 15-round fights. In fact, I think the last 15-round title fight I recall seeing was probably in August of uh, 1987. Um, I think that had that fight gone 15 rounds, it would not have been nearly as close. I think Leonard very Smartly and in a calculated way expended himself fully by about the ninth round of that fight and, you know, strategically placed his flurries. But I don't think he did enough to take the title away from Hagler. Um, but that said, uh, to your direct question, it, it always upset me that Hagler retired. Uh, but there's a part of me that really respects him too. Now looking back at how many fighters come out of retirement and they are a shadow of their former self. And I also like knowing that we never have to have that tarnished. I never got to see a fat Hagler, for example, right? I never got to see Hagler getting dressed, you know, like, you know, just getting smoked. So uh, whereas, unfortunately, like, our image of Tyson is a guy who should have never been in the ring at the end of his career. Our, 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 Our view of Ali is, I mean, Ali should have never, in my opinion, should have never fought after Zaire. No. Maybe Manila, but right. never Zaire. He should have really he certainly should have never been fighting Sphinx. What's
1: the other way around? Uh, Zaire's before Manila.
0: No, I know. And uh-huh. I, I could make the case he could have retired after Zaire. Oh he should have. Yes, yes, yes. But
1: definitely not after Manila.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, sorry. So definitely after Manila, no way, shape, or form. Uh the two Sphinx fights should have never happened, despite the fact that, that gives him three championships. And then the 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 tragedy upon tragedy of Burbick and um uh, homes. I mean, those are disasters. So I love, I guess, that I never had to see Hagler go through that. And I can still go and watch, even in his worst fight, losing to Leonard, I still think he actually won. And it was a close fight.
1: Again, we're speaking with Dr. Peter Atia, the longevity expert and the boxing expert, endurance expert, Formula One expert. Um, how far did you go as a fighter? Well,
0: you know, in Canada, the system is different, right? We don't have a golden gloves system. And the other thing I figured out pretty quickly was um, my style was not – I was not going to go to the Olympics. Like that was very clear because, as you know, Olympic boxing is a very different sport. And so I think by the time I was 17, I realized um, I'm going to just turn professional, Um, so I, I had a trainer at the time whose son actually did go to the Olympics. So he represented Canada in, he would go on to represent Canada. Sorry. So it's a little bit out of order. He would go on to represent Canada in the Olympics at long after I'd stopped boxing. But, um, even to see him in the gym, you just knew he was playing a different sport. So if, if he and I were going to spar for three rounds, um, I wouldn't have a scratch on me at the end of the fight, but I also would have a very hard time landing a punch on him. If we were going to spar for eight rounds, it was a very different story. Um, so I would say that by the time I was about 18, I was at a real fork in the road where I realized I'm at the end of high school. My parents are not happy about this idea of me becoming a professional boxer. Um, and Pretty soon, I'm not going to be in school, so that means I'm going to become a professional. Um, at the time, I'm also debating. So, at the time, I'm also doing martial arts in parallel and kickboxing. So, I'm also sort of weighing the odds of boxing is a much bigger sport, but I probably have a much bigger advantage in kickboxing because I've been doing it um, at a higher level and. Most kickboxers, it turns out, don't know how to box very well, and I had much better boxing skills than most kickboxers, and I could sort of have had the same, you know, footwork as most of them. So, anyway, to make a long story short, I have this real epiphany on the on the heels of an interaction with a teacher. So, I have this amazing twelfth grade math teacher who calls me in one day, and he says, "Hey, Peter, I heard uh, you're not going to university," and I said, "That's right," and I'm expecting the lecture, but he doesn't. He says. You know, when I was your age, all I wanted to do was play in the NHL, and I I completely get it, and you have to pursue your dream and don't let anybody take it away from you. And I'm thinking, I can't believe I'm hearing this. This is fantastic, right? I can finally go home and tell my parents, hey, Mr. Sparrow wants me to be a professional boxer. However. (laughs) However, he says, but I want you to know that somewhere inside of you is um, is someone who's got a great talent for mathematics, and I think – you're going to be depriving the, the world of something you could do through that. And, and so that, that moment planted a seed that ultimately led to a year later, me having this change of heart and ultimately going to college.
1: And eventually, um, you become a physician and, 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 and you maintain these other interests. Um, how did longevity become? an area of expertise for you. You know, you're
0: kind to say that. I don't think it's an area of expertise. I mean, I think it's a constant journey. It's an evolution. I, I, I can take credit for being obsessed with it. I just don't think it's such a broad topic. Um, I don't think anyone can be an expert in it. But when my daughter was born, by that point, I was into marathon swimming. So I do, as you point out, I probably tend to obsess over things. And by that point, I was several iterations later.
1: It's, it's not a hard observation. <laughs>
0: The Pulitzer Prize-winning writer notices, yeah. Um, so, So fast forward to 2008. My obsession at the time then is marathon swimming. And my daughter's born, and it really was a turning point when I, for the first time in my life, sensed a type of joy I just hadn't experienced. You know, there's joy that comes from lots of things. There's joy that comes from achieving this professional success or, you know, swimming a channel or, you know, doing whatever it is that you set out to do. But there is anybody who's got a kid will tell you there's there's a you know you know this like there's something different that comes with seeing this kid and I sort of realized um, although the 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 articulation of this wouldn't be crystallized for a few years I would like to stick around a little longer than I'm probably programmed to stick around you know up until that point. You know, there's these stats that say if you talk to, you go into the Olympic Village the day before the Olympics start and you, you anonymously poll athletes and say, look, in exchange for winning a gold medal, would you be willing to be dead in 10 years? And, you know, I've heard the results of these polls and they're staggering, right? Like most of the athletes sure. say, absolutely, I'll happily die at 20, you know, or at 37 if I can have a gold medal in the next two weeks. And I wouldn't say my attitude was that cavalier, but I'd certainly only been focused on performance and this next event, this next event. And something about Olivia's birth really made me think, hey, there's there's a life after this. And, and again, like you and I have an advantage of being spectators to sport, which means we watch the short half-life of these great, great athletes. And you realize that even the greatest longevity within sports still represents a fraction of that person's life potentially. So I, I think that was really what made the cognitive switch.
1: Unless, of course, you're Tom Brady and you're just going to play forever at the highest level and defy everything.
0: I I had the funniest image the other day of Tom Brady. There was this very famous surgeon at Johns Hopkins where I trained, and he had incredible hands. He was just a really talented technical surgeon. But I remember at one point he was getting so old that the residents used to joke that we're going to have to wheel him into the operating room. And he's just gonna have a head with hands. He'll do his little thing and then you'll wheel him off. And something, I was doing something yesterday and I thought of Tom Brady who, as you know, I'm a huge Patriots fan. So I realized I just alienated like probably the whole world. Yeah. yeah 67% of the people listening to this are now turning it off. Um, but I just, I'm obsessed with Belichick and I'm obsessed with the Patriots. And I had this funny image of Brady being like 75, being wheeled on the field, like wheeled into the huddle. <laughs> Barking out stuff, wheeled to the line of scrimmage, and still managing to make the pass.
1: And no one at this point can say that you're going to be wrong about that. We're speaking with Dr. Peter Atia. His podcast, which is a very popular one, is The Drive. Covers a lot of, I don't know, is wellness kind of an ugly word uh, these days, but uh, all kinds of issues about um, uh Physical health, mental health, endurance. I was listening recently to, uh, one of your shows and you were talking about, um, dementia and dementia prevention and and it got so deep so fast and and you do a good job of it. You're not talking down to people, no, whatever, but you make it, uh, understandable to people. How do you manage, um, how do you manage to stay up to date on so many different health issues?
0: It's a hundred percent, uh, the result of having a research team. So I have a pretty large clinical team that helps me, you know, actually take care of patients and I have a, probably a larger research team. So I have a team of analysts. So Bob Kaplan, who you probably would, if you've watched any of the ask me anything segments, Bob is the one that and he and I sit there and sort of banter back and forth. So he's kind of my sidekick or I'm his sidekick, depending on how you look at it. And under Bob, there is a team of, five or six other analysts, and they have effectively become my peripheral or auxiliary brains. So, for example, today, the last thing I did before coming over here was I had a call with Bob, and for 30 minutes, we just ran the list of stuff. Okay, you know, Bob, um, this paper, which just came out, um, I've looked at it really quickly. I need you to really look at it deeply because I think it's interesting. You know, they calorie-restricted a bunch of people and made them exercise Like, crazy amounts of exercise. One group was given a placebo. The other group was given testosterone supplementation. The group that was given a placebo didn't lose any muscle mass. The testosterone group actually gained muscle mass. That's very counterintuitive, given that they were only eating 55% of their daily energy requirements. I need you to go and dig into that deeper. And... Um, by the way, can you have so and so, one of the analysts, work on this other thing that I need done? Blah, blah blah. So, so basically, I'm delegating learning to other people who then filter up to me to speed up the process. So, and, and even still, it's very hard. You know, there are about a hundred thousand publications make their way onto something called PubMed, which is sort of the place where we organize medical literature in the English language. A hundred thousand a month. So. We, my view is that somewhere between, you know, a hundred of those and thereabouts a hundred of those are relevant and we have to sort of sniff those out and learn what we can from them. And I,
1: if, if you know, if we could,
0: I'd, I'd have a hundred analysts.
1: And you mentioned briefly your, uh, your appreciation of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the Patriots and, and how most people will now, uh, certainly uh, resent you or, or hate you or loathe you. But, um, what we're seeing, and it's not just Tom Brady at, 42. It's also Roger Federer is almost 40, the way he's achieving. Um, what, what we're seeing from so many older athletes right now, Serena Williams at, at her age, uh, we, we saw, I mean, what Floyd Mayweather, when he does choose to compete, what he's doing in his forties, he's still untouchable and longevity in general, not, not career sports longevity is what you talk about a lot. But do you see something going on when you look at Federer and you look at Brady and you look at Floyd Mayweather and the way that we're training athletes now um, that is enabling this? You know, it's
0: really interesting because you've, you've, you know, there are some professional athletes who I know you've named a bunch that I don't, right? So I don't personally know any of them. So any anything I'm saying could be total nonsense based on observation. So let's take Federer for example. Um, because as you point out his longevity is remarkable, his performance is stunning. I mean, it's it's hard to believe even though he just lost in that final, uh, the Wimbledon final. It's a joke of it. Um, that's an example of what <laughs> like those of us who can't even comprehend what those guys are actually doing. Like that's the that's a 50.1 to 49.9% vote. Like that is a razor thin margin, and to think that in 2008, when he lost a similar heartbreaker to Nadal, people thought that was the end of his career. I mean, most people thought we have witnessed the passing of the torch. Um,
1: Understandably,
0: yes, yes, absolutely. Now, what I can tell you, just as a as a student of biomechanics and one who wants to understand how to preserve our body function, is. Either naturally or through some very deliberate training, the Federer's of the world are able to do something that I will spend the rest of my life trying to do and trying to teach, which is they remain completely connected. Every inch of their body is connected at all times, and force is always transmitted in a perfect manner through the muscles and not the joints. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but – um, without getting too technical on the terminology around this, anytime you exert a force on the outside world, that force is ex- is being exerted back on you okay so so when when Usain Bolt runs, the reason Usain Bolt runs faster than anyone in the history of running is his mass his uh, force to weight ratio exceeds anyone at the force that that he is hitting the ground. So the force that Usain Bolt hits the ground is the same force that's hitting him up. The force that's hitting him up is allowing him to stay in the air longer. So he travels further per stride. Bolt doesn't take more strides per unit time. He He travels further per unit stride and he can maintain his speed longer. So everything that an athlete like Federer is doing is about transmitting some force. Um, And his the degree to which when he serves his, you know, which you think about the whip that's being generated by a serve, right? So it's like, you know, a nine-foot whip. That's connected to his feet. For most athletes, especially non-elite athletes, but even for most people at the elite level, you will see breaks in the armor. You will see places where forces get dissipated into their back, into their knees, into their shoulders. Federer seems to lack all of that. And again, how much of that is just raw neuromuscular innate talent versus conditioning, training, and practice, I don't know because I don't know him. But that to me is the element of longevity. And in in fact, longevity in sports to me means delaying the decline because there's really two types of – there's two pieces. This is oversimplifying again, but there's two pieces to this, right? Let's use Brady now as an example. Is Brady a better quarterback today than in 2001? I mean, I would say yes.
1: Definitely.
0: Is he physically actually better? No. I would say physically he was probably better in 2001, but his experience today, his ability, I mean, especially at that position, I mean, my God, you know, your ability to be able to read and see and and, and such is, you know, unparalleled. So what Brady is doing that's so well is he is delaying the decline faster than his peers. It's not that he's not declining. He is. He's just delaying it more, and that's giving him more and more time for his experience and his knowledge and his wisdom to provide his edge. And I, I think that there's again, there's just something to these these guys that have the ability to, the you know, again. Th- I think in Brady's case, it's more deliberate, truthfully, uh, just based on what I've read about Tom, and I, I don't know enough about Federer, but. Um, there's an amazing ability that these guys have to just just when you watch the way their knees, hips, shoulders, oblique, like the way their core moves around, uh, they're doing something different from the rest of us.
1: As a boxing enthusiast, an historian, uh, a fan of the sport in general, I mentioned Floyd Mayweather earlier, and it's not always easy. Uh, it's quite difficult, in fact, to be a fan of Floyd Mayweather, the person. But Floyd Mayweather, the fighter. And what he has done, um, how he has built this record, an undefeated record over the course of a couple of decades, um, nobody's ever hurt the guy, really. And maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm forgetting a moment, but, but what he's done, the, uh, elusiveness, the, the speed, the precision, and still doing it, um, Whenever he chooses to do so, whether or not you consider McGregor, the McGregor thing, that doesn't count. Um, When you see Floyd Mayweather and what he's achieved in that sport, which makes him such a remarkable defensive fighter, what do you think about Mayweather?
0: Well, I mean, I think you've sort of captured the essence of it, right? Which is just, I don't know what it is. And I feel like I'm being a bit of a hypocrite, right? Because I certainly loved all of... Ali's antics and his mouth and stuff like that. Like, even though I didn't live through it and maybe that's part of it, right? Maybe it's because I got to revisit it. Um, There is something about Mayweather's antics that I just don't find that interesting. He, and I think part of it too is I've never loved defensive fighters. I mean, I think that's just the nature of it. And again, it probably comes back to my own projection. I was never a defensive fighter. I couldn't counterpunch to save my life, right? Like I only had one way to fight, and it was what you – like literally take Hagler Hearns.
1: Like Arturo Gatti, another Canadian.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. My only way to fight – and it wasn't that I had to get my head pummeled, but I was going my, – my my MO was create a pace that is high enough that the other guy's going to have to start making mistakes. But I was never playing chess, ever. And so I think on some level I'm just – Inherently jealous of people who had so much more athletic ability that they could do what Mayweather does. I mean, Mayweather is staggeringly talented. He's so talented, in fact, that I think the greatest tragedy of our, of this last era of boxing is that he didn't have his Fraser. I mean, it's, it's, it's how awful it is that we had to wait too many years to see him fight Pacquiao and that by the time they fought, it was not even a fight. I mean, that's, that's actually the last time I paid for pay-per-view, by the yeah. way. Like, that's how pissed off oh, I years. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm actually done with boxing <laughs> at this point. Um, and so in many ways, he sort of suffers a little bit from the Roy Jones Jr. phenomenon, which is he never, in his prime, truly had someone to bring out the absolute best in him. And, But, of course, unlike Roy Jones Jr., who I loved, by the way. I mean, we were talking about this before we got started. We were both at the same fight in January of 96. We're both at Madison Square Garden to see uh, Roy Jones Jr. fight fight Marquis Sosa. There was something about his capacity to finish you immediately when you made a mistake that made Roy Jones Jr. a stunning fighter to watch. Um, And I would argue probably one of the most exciting fighters during the... uh, It's from the period of about 19... 89 to 96, I don't think there was more interesting fighter out there, including Tyson, because I think by that point, Tyson really wasn't as interesting a fighter.
1: You could certainly make the case that Mike Tyson's last impressive fight was Spinks in the summer of 88, which is before Roy Jones is even fighting in the Olympics, where he got robbed, of course, but that's a subject for another time. Um,
0: Did you ever hear Teddy Atlas on the Joe Rogan show talk about Tyson?
1: not on the Joe Rogan show. I've heard Teddy talk about Mike. So interesting. 80, hundreds of times.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you have. So so Teddy made an interesting point on Rogan which was Tyson's never actually been in a fight in his life. And the argument he made was by definition a fight is when the other guy's there to fight. And he went through all of Tyson's victories and he said those guys never showed up to fight. Like we talked about Spinks. I mean, Spike's clearly wasn't there to fight. He was there to not get killed, to collect 12 million or 13 million bucks. And he went through, of course, everyone that beat Tyson, and he said, basically, Tyson's record is like 0-5. What do you think of that take?
1: I think, uh, and we've talked about this before in the context of Buster Douglas, I think Buster Douglas won that fight because he wasn't defeated before he climbed through the ropes. He was a guy because, and a lot of these guys have this background, so it's kind of hard to say, well, Buster Douglas grew up in a fighting family. Michael Sphinx's brother was the heavyweight champion of the world, too, So, but Buster Douglas... Grew up with a father who was a fighter, uh, and tough. He grew up with brothers who were fighters and tough. The idea of being scared by anyone, uh, just didn't register for Buster Douglas. And the physical difference as well. Six foot four as opposed to five foot ten. Uh, 230 pounds as opposed to 218 pounds. And I think in some ways, I, I think that's a fair, Teddy knows more than I do, a fair way to analyze it that, um, Against Buster Douglas in Tokyo in 1990, he found somebody finally who wasn't defeated before the fight started. Yeah.
0: I mean, of all the people to defeat Tyson, nothing is more impressive than Douglas, which, you know, we, we had a, the great privilege of talking about that when, when, when we, when you and I spoke on the, on the drive. Um, and I've gone back and watched that 30 for 30 a couple more times. I mean, it's, it's, it it is a beautiful story and it's, I'm so glad you did it because it would be easy to forget that story given that it occurred and then he immediately loses to Holyfield. It's easy to relegate him as a footnote to history, but but that was anything but a footnote. I'm very grateful and and
1: I'm looking forward to it. Buster's having a 30th anniversary celebration. They're having one for him in Columbus in February. The 30th anniversary is coming up and, and I'm going to be um, playing a role in that. And, uh, I always love that story. And what he did, somebody had to be first. We're speaking with Dr. Peter Tia. He is the host of The Drive. And as you have been hearing, he is a polymath, uh, eclectic interest. And before we let you go, we could go on forever. One thing that's always fascinated me as a fan of Olympic sports, having covered a lot of Olympics, um, and like many people uh, who who follow endurance sports, What's happened in the marathon in the last few years? Just how amazing it is. And the idea of a two hour milestone. Somebody, it's, I guess it's gotta happen. When you think about somebody breaking, breaking the, uh, the two hour mark of the marathon, you know, 65 years after Bannister broke the four minute mile, what does it signify?
0: Well, have you read Alex Hutchins' book, um, Endure? No. So it's a great, it's a great book and I actually hope to have Alex on the podcast at some point to explore this topic. He, he does, I think, a great job exploring this and other feats of human endurance. Um, uh, he's also a fellow Canadian and I don't know him even though we were in college at the same time, but my friends who ran cross country competed against him. Um, I think there is an element of the banister-esque part of this in the sense that there's a, there's just a, there's a mental barrier there a little bit. But that said, I also think there is this is physiologically at a different level. Um, When you look at all of the elements of what it's going to take to run a two-hour marathon, and it's also worth pointing out there's two ways this can be done. I assume you're referring to the stunt way, which is like what Nike was doing a couple of years ago, where it's not an official break, but – for all intents and purposes, you break, in other words, you remember what, what, what Nike did? Yeah. Yeah. At Monza was basically, I wasn't,
1: I wasn't thinking one way or the other. I mean, I think it has to be a, a real marathon for it to make any
0: And, and all, the only reason I make that distinction is that's going to just stretch it out even further and further. I mean, to, to break two hours in a real marathon, which only a handful of marathons qualify, right? They have to be a start and finish in the same place, you know, given elevation change. um You, you basically need to have a little bit of a change in training, right? So there's, there's a muscle breakdown issue that isn't really a factor in the mile, right? The mile is by definition a four-minute or less event. Um, one can sustain a lot more tissue damage for that period of time than two hours. Um, secondly, heating and ventilation <laughs> becomes an issue, right? Again, uh, for the mile, you're only asking the system to do cooling for a, for a period of time that's you know much shorter. Um, nutrition starts to matter. Fuel partitioning starts to matter. Obviously, the mile, you don't have to consume water, food, or anything. At the marathon level, hydration is going to start to matter. And you start to run up against issues like how much can you absorb this nutrient or water? How much can you optimize cellular respiration? These things like that. I believe this will be broken. I do not believe this is like some impossible barrier. That just strikes me as illogical and that's a complete fallacy. That's like, you know, that's a construct of how we created time basically. But I don't see it just happening out of the gate. You know, I don't know that, but, but look, I'd be wrong. Like maybe someone like you, maybe the equivalent of Usain Bolt comes along. Cause if you really think about what Usain Bolt did to sprinting, let's put that in perspective for a second. When Ben Johnson in Seoul, Korea runs a nine, seven, nine, many people thought nine, seven is about the limit clean. Right. Like you just, Why they? Yeah. you're not going to, because if you analyzed his race, the number of strides, the duration, etc., you, you sort of, I remember reading all of these analysis that from really smart, smart physiologists that said that's as fast as it's getting. Well, I mean, Usain Bolt made a mockery of all of that by changing the game, which was, imagine you had a guy that could take a stride at the same frequency as everybody else, but could go whatever, six inches further. Well,
1: Who's seven inches taller than Ben Johnson? That's right. Another so Canadian. yes.
0: So <laughs> why could we see that in marathon? Again, it won't look the same because again, weight is going to matter so much in the marathon. But it's it's not it's not just weight; it's power to weight ratio. Um, so I don't know. I, we're going to see it, and I think we'll see it in our lifetime. Um, but I but I think a few kinks have to be worked out, and a lot of them have to do with that kind of stuff we just discussed.
1: I said one last thing, but I didn't really mean it. It, it. You know, I know people run marathons. Uh, I, I was a jogger for a long time. You know, I think I did, I did one half marathon. It almost killed me. So I, I'm not, you know, uh, an expert in terms of participation, but is running like that, you know, the people who run two marathons a year, run a hundred miles a month, is that good for you? It's
0: all relative to what the alternative is. If the alternative is sitting on a couch, Yes, it is absolutely good for you. If the alternative is putting together a laser-sharp program that is geared towards maximizing your longevity, no. I think there are better things that you can do. And I think there are basically two main things that have to be considered as far as the damage that one can do from excessive exercise. And and again, when you say this stuff, you automatically upset a bunch of people who immediately think that you're saying the alternative is sit on the couch. Absolutely not. So to be clear – You'd be better off running yourself to death than sitting on the couch. Uh, matter speaking, but when you consider the long-term orthopedic consequences that most people experience from hyper-endurance activities because they aren't doing these things correctly, remember it's very different when Meb runs a marathon than when you or I run a marathon. A little more I mean, fish. well, I mean, I, you know, I, I know Meb, and we live in San Diego, and I used to train on my bike at the same place Meb would run. So I like I have the luxury of having spent hours watching Meb run. I mean, he literally looks like what God must have had in mind when God decided, I'll let these things, I'll let these creatures run. Like, it just looks beautiful. And that's not true of every elite runner, but it, of some of them it is. And so um when you're pounding your knees and your hips um you have to ask the question what's what does this look like when i'm 70 years old the second thing james o'keefe a cardiologist um, has done a lot of work on this is uh, a lot of hyperendurance causes damage to the heart and it's not the damage most people think of so when most people think of heart disease and damage to the heart you know in a western society they think of atherosclerosis which is sort of this arterial disease um That's not what the people who are hyper-exercising are typically dying of. They're getting sort of a scarring and fibrosis in the heart, and also they're getting damage to the electrical system. So the electrical system of the heart, picture a set of wires running through the muscle. As that muscle stretches constantly, which is what it has to do to accommodate that amount of exertion, you start to permanently stretch out the electrical system. And so even in my practice, I've already seen three young athletes need... Uh, ablations for atrial fibrillation. So, so I do think that the optimal thing for longevity is actually not long distance, ultra duration exercise. Um, and I, so, I do think there is an inverted U shape, and the sweet spot is less than that, but obviously significantly more than doing nothing.
1: Well, as someone who's about to turn fifty, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate um, all the work you've done trying to make this stuff. Uh, understandable for the masses, people like me, and uh, our conversations about all these different topics. Dr. Peter Atia, who we've been hearing from for the last hour, is an expert on so many things. He is the host of The Drive, which I highly recommend, one of the truly worthwhile podcasts out there in the sea of podcasts. Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.